All right, everyone, welcome to episode 10 of Friday Forum's Pixar Rewatch. It's our first episode of 2021. We're into a new year. Today, we are talking about the 10th Pixar film, Up, which is a fun one. Today, with us, as always, we have Jimmy Anthony, and he is going to be our Carl Fredrickson. Uh, it's just a house. He doesn't say that. Uh, it's He's just like, a house. <laughs> he doesn't say that. Yell, yell at Russell. Yeah, yell yeah at you Ru- gotta yell, Russell. yell at Russell. Russell! He doesn't say it's just a house at the end. I swear he does. He Probably. Yeah, oh, he maybe he does. That. But he doesn't yeah. say grumpy. He's just like, it's just a house. He's grumpier oh, at the beginning. I'm just trying to be gravelly, not grumpy. <laughs> All right. Okay, Russell! Well, <laughs> Russell! <laughs> Where are you going? All right. Thank you. You did it. <laughs> also with us is Byron Anthony. He's going to be Kevin, the bird. What? Yep, that's basically it. Uh, We also have the lovely Cynthia Anthony. She's going to be our Russell. What? Russell? I want to get a badge for that. Can you give me a badge if I do that? Hey, Mr. Fredrickson. (laughs) Nice. Good. That one one works. We also have Jacob Shearer. He'll be Charles Muntz, the the bad guy. Epsilon makes a beautiful cherries jubilee. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there you go. Nice. <laughs> uh, and Daniel McCarley's here. He's going to be Doug. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I do. I want to ever so much. Oh, please, please. Oh, please be my prisoner. I, I do not like this at all. <laughs> oh, he was no. ready. We have our next uh, guest star with us today. John Sylvester is here joining us. How are you doing today, John? Good. Uh, first time caller, long time listener. <laughs> We're happy to have you here. Um, John, I put you down as uh, Alpha, Beta, and Gamma. Just your choice of any of the other dogs. Any of them? <laughs> uh, let's see. Alpha is like, squirrel! Squirrel! <laughs> yeah, that's it. Well, he's got the broken... You, you better get that bird. Otherwise, he's going to be mad at us. Go to get that bird. Wow. And Two the other guy birds. has like kind of like a Bronx accent, right? The third one? Yeah. I don't know that I, uh, I could even try that one. I think that would be a failure. He's like, what does he say? I hate... No, I'm never mind. <laughs> uh, that was somewhere between Bronx and Scottish. <laughs> well, two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> yeah, no. Well done. Well done. And I'm your host, Kelly Anthony, and I'm going to be young Ellie because old Ellie doesn't talk. Um, Adventure is out there. You know, you don't talk very much. I like you. That's my favorite line, she says. All right. So today, we, of course, we are talking about the lovely, cute, just so many great words for this movie up. All 
right, so first thing we're going to talk about is everyone's memories of the film. So, Jimmy, start us off. What are your memories of Up? Um, this was one that I didn't watch in the theaters, and I didn't see for quite a while for whatever reason. I People loved it, and i um, pretty sure it got nominated for some Academy Awards. And um, it, it was like a big deal, but I just didn't see it till later. Uh, I don't even remember the first time I saw it, but I knew it was way later than everybody else. So that's my memory uh, of seeing it. I remember being told about it a lot before I saw it, so like the sadness of the opening and stuff was sort of like already told to me. So it wasn't as sad maybe if I just was one of those people seeing it in the theater without like everyone talking about it beforehand. Um, but it was super powerful, of course. And then I remember kind of thinking that they were they would be going somewhere more magical and being like, oh wait, are they still on Earth? And like the later half of the movie kind of threw me for a loop and I wasn't like sure how I felt about it, but I really liked the beginning and that was my first impression that I could remember. Um, I've only seen it a few times. It's not even one that I've seen a bunch. Uh, I've seen Wally, for example, way more. Um, I don't know why. Maybe it's just like heavy, so like I tend to avoid it when I just want to put on a casual Pixar movie. Um, so yeah, that's my general memories and impressions. All right, Byron, memories. Um, sort of similar to Jim. I, I didn't see it in theaters. I can't remember really when the first time I did, but it was certainly well after it was released. Um, I I did like it, but I, I remember thinking that it was weird. I thought it was a sort of weird, like, potluck of a movie. Um, just with all the different movements and all the different settings and all that. But I liked it. Um, also similar to Jim, I don't really come back to it all that much. But yeah, I think, you know, this last time I watched it for this was like the second or third time I'd seen it ever, which I've seen, you know, the shit out of Wally and Toy Story and some of the other ones. So it's, um, yeah, I haven't seen this one a bunch. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I didn't really have like major strong impressions about it. So I'm like still like trying to find what they are. I don't know. I, I, we'll get to what I think about it. But yeah, I don't know. Just sort of came and left pretty much all right interesting cynthia i just saw the movie uh this week for the very first time i'd heard about it but not a lot about it sometimes um you can find out about films from the merchandising or it's associated with a cereal or toys at mcdonald's or something um <clears throat> but up sort of was just kind of off of my radar i was um teaching full-time at then I believe were almost perhaps in my student teaching so super busy in my life and so I loved watching it this week um, <clears throat> for the first time and even watched it a second time prior, you know preparing for this podcast so my memories of Up are extremely recent. All righty Jacob memories. Uh, yeah not a lot of long-term memories I think I saw it three or four years ago the first time and I kind of didn't understand how this was fun for kids, but uh, you know, it was—it's a cute story. The the thing that I heard about it and like kind of put it in the category before I saw it was just you know it's the story of the sad old man, and so it just kind of stayed in that category for a long time 
before I watched it. So that's all I got. All right, Daniel, memories. Oh, gosh. So the first time I saw this movie was on a plane flying back from London, probably about six months after it came out. Kelly knows what I'm talking about. Um, And I remember thinking, oh, I don't like this one as much as the last few. There wasn't like some 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 grand metaphor to figure out like there is for all the other ones. It was weird because it didn't have like the hook of being like a hidden world about toys or animals or of some kind or, or objects. Um, and so I was like, what is the hook? Is it balloons? You know? Um, and I didn't know. Um, but I went and watched it on the plane and I was like, okay, it's like more of a straightforward story and it's different. Um, I think that maybe that like, cause that was also like right around my 21st birthday, which is probably not a good, not exactly the time in life to appreciate this movie. Um, and I filed it was like, oh, that's okay, but I don't like it as much. I think it's 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 somewhat grown with me since. Um, we'll we'll get we'll get to that though as we get into more detail. Okay. Okay. Um, turning it over to John now. Before you start, though, I just want to say to our listeners that when we started, first of all, John's a longtime family friend of the Anthony's. And when we first started this podcast, he hit me up saying, I want to be on your up episode, like from the get go. <laughs> so I'm just no pressure, but I'm just really curious to hear what you have to say. So, John, what are your memories of up? I have a lot to say. Kick back and relax. No. Um, funny thing is, is up isn't my favorite Pixar movie, but it's really important to my uh, experience with Pixar because up until I saw it, which I saw it when it first came out on TV, so like in 2010, like about a year later, um, I hadn't watched any Pixar movies since Toy Story in the theaters. Um, I just, it didn't appeal to me, and anything that wasn't like a Charlie Kaufman movie or a P.T. Anderson movie, I just felt wasn't worth my time at that time. And it came on TV, uh, and I kind of absentmindedly put it on and expected to just turn it off five minutes later, like you just have something on in the background. And I watched that opening scene and I remember sitting in the living room of my parents' house on with their big screen TV, and I was bawling tears after that first scene and just mesmerized and destroyed and couldn't believe that, like, in how long is that opening sequence? Like, five minutes, you know? Um, yeah, something like that. How much this cartoon had, had triggered my emotions, and so I was locked in for the whole movie. And Later on, I'll discuss that I also think it has some problems. Uh, I agree with Byron's term of potluck. The pacing is kind of weird. Um, but it really tapped into me this idea that these uh, these Pixar movies could be really thought-provoking. And so immediately after that, I circled back around and I watched WALL-E, um, which I've also seen a million times more than I've seen this movie, uh, Monsters, Inc. So um, it was just particularly uh, fond memory for me of learning how thought-provoking these seemingly kid childlike cartoons could be for grown adult. Wow. So I have very, very specific vivid memories of seeing this movie. I saw it maybe not opening weekend, but like the weekend after it came out in theaters, I went to the AMC theater in downtown Disney with my then boyfriend and we went and saw it. And I had no concept of what it was going to be about. Like the poster was just the house with the balloons, like in the sky. And like, I don't really remember seeing trailers for it that much. Um, So I was like, okay, something to do with balloons and like flying, maybe like 
pilots. Like I really had no idea. And when it started, like same, like everyone in the theater was like bawling their eyes out, like after the opening scene. And I was just like, what is, what is this movie? What's going to happen? And like, same from there, I was hooked and I didn't know what was going to happen. And then every little, the, I love the potluck thing about it though. Like the dog showed up, like the bird, I was like, what is this movie? And I really enjoyed it. And then the year later, or no, it must've been like later that year. Um, it must've like just come out on DVD or something. And my high, I was a senior in high school at the time and my high school did um, blood drives every year and I would always sign up for them. So I remember like going into the gym for the blood drive and they were like behind schedule. So I was just like sitting in the bleachers and they had like a big projection screen and they were showing up. And um, I watched that movie two times in a row in the gym before they called my name to take my blood. So I just remember sitting in the gym watching it. I don't think I'd seen it since the theaters. And I was like, oh, yeah, this movie, I liked it. And then since I had to watch it like a second time immediately after, I remember the second time after, like really like soaking in like the beauty of it and like the depth of it. And I from like <laughs> from that blood drive on, I was just like, that movie's amazing. So those are that's my very specific vivid memories of this movie and unlike you guys I've seen this movie like a billion times I feel like I've seen it so much um and I remember like when quarantine first started ABC started just showing like Pixar movies like on Friday nights because they didn't have new programming to show and up came on and like I just was like hooked like was just gonna watch it with all the commercials until Jimmy came in the living room and was like I don't want to watch this with commercials and I was like okay but I would have sat there and watched the whole thing, even with commercials on. So um, that's my memories of Up. All right. Well, before we get into the movie, I'm going to turn it over to Daniel now for our box office and Oscar trivia. Okay, okay, okay. So Up came out in 2009. And 2009 was a pretty big year at the box office because it was like immediately after the recession. So everyone, instead of going to Vegas or Disneyland, just went to more movies instead. So it like lifted a lot of boats. Um, and in that year, Up came in at number three. It made almost $300 million in the United States and $440 million internationally. It was Pixar's actually highest grossing movie uh, or second highest after uh, Finding Nemo up to that point. It hit outgrossed Wally. Uh, and, and it was it was one of their biggest hits up to that point, even if like merchandising wasn't maybe as much as some of the others. Um, and then it got nominated for Academy Awards that year. It it was the uh, second animated movie after Beauty and the Beast to be nominated for Best Picture, mostly because that was the year that um, that the Oscars expanded it to to ten movies um, after like some controversy and stuff. So um, they so up got nominated. It was also nominated for um, for screenplay. Actually, the screenplay was nominated as well, and it was nominated for original score. Um, and Michael Giacchino actually won for original score, um, probably deservedly. I think we'll we'll talk about it. But the the score is one of the the higher points of the movie. I think so. I think that was like not a surprise that it was going to win. Like that's Michael Giacchino's only, is it Giacchino or Giacchino? I never remember. Yeah. Which one. What is it, Jacob? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, Cal- my memory's not that good, but I think it's the K. The Kino. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it won best animated picture, right? I don't know if you did. You say that? Oh yes, I I yeah, I never. We just assume it did. Yes, it was yeah. We just assume it did. <laughs> I totally remember this being nominated and like having that thought right away, like. Oh, has any other animated movie been nominated besides Beauty and the Beast? And I guess not. I also remember this movie that year with the 10 movies being nominated and Up in the Air with George Clooney was also nominated. And I always just remembered like that. It was funny that there was Up and Up in the Air, like in the Mm -hmm. same year. (laughs) That's right. Some of the other movies. Yeah. What won the best picture that year? The Hurt Locker won. Um, It was also the year Avatar was nominated. The Blind Side, Precious, Inglorious Bastards. Um, District 9 was nominated. That was another movie I saw on the same plane ride, actually. Um, that plane was ride, I was, like, dying. I was so sick, and the, my, like, head <laughs> oh, pressure was that's crazy. why you didn't want to talk or, about it. I just remembered. Yeah. I was like, why wasn't I watching all these movies on that plane ride with you? And it's because I was just crying of head pain. <laughs> Sorry, Daniel, continue. <laughs> Okay, yeah, but those were like some of the other movies that came out. Um, what was it? Avatar came out that year. That was the like, yeah, the and that like movie. crushed it. And it was like, right, everyone wasn't sure if that was going to win Bro- Best Picture or The Hurt Locker. And right, what's her name? James Cameron's ex-wife, like one. Yeah. Wasn't she like oh, yeah. the first women to win Best Director? Yes, uh, only one. So the far. only women, women, woman to win best director. I remember that too. Yeah. I think that was the first year I was like really into the Oscars. Cause I mm. remember that a lot too. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Cause it just like expanded the whole thing. Still, I think like one of the high, the highest rated on television, probably because of Avatar and people wondering yeah. if it was going to win. Um, I don't know. Nothing else. It was a big hit. It was one of Pixar's biggest hits as a movie, at least. Um, All right. And it's like the last in Pixar's classic run for the decade. Mm. I like to think the next movie kind of rounds it out, but uh, well, that's my own opinion. <laughs> we'll debate whether 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 the next movie is part of that or not. Um, All right. All right. Uh, now I'm going to turn it over to Cynthia for our fun facts. Yes, as always, Pixar movies have so many fans and people all over the world come up with Easter eggs and surprises in the film and fun facts. Um, so one of the things that was interesting is that Paradise Falls is based on the world famous Angel Falls in Venezuela. And I believe even that some of the animators took a trip there to go there. Uh, I have come to respect, uh, Pixar and their work so much doing this podcast and to, to read this statistic, it says during the production of Up, the animation department produced an average of four seconds of animation a week. How much work it takes to get that kind of film all put together. It's interesting because Pixar had a group of live ostriches come to the studio for for reference, you know, for the animators that were uh, creating Kevin. And... um, the whole art department went on a field trip to veterinarian Dr. James Stewart's place to observe them in a, in a little bit of a more natural habitat. And then they brought them into the studio. 
um, and just the detail. They worked with architects to learn about home foundations. You know, when the, the first time the house lifts up off the foundation, all that was based on what would actually happen if a house lifted up and based on houses built in whatever time it would have been that, uh, oh. you know, Ellie and, and um, Walter would have, not Walter, what's that his name? That is a fun fact. Yeah, oh, anyway. Um, okay. Um, there in, in the drawings, there are 10,297 balloons that lift up the, <laughs> lift up the, uh, house. Dr. said he spotted a simple air image that was drawn at Pixar that mirrored his desire to escape from everyday life. He said, we saw this drawing of a house buoyed by balloons at the studio. And there was something that was poetic and intriguing about it. We started asking ourselves who's in there. And where are they going? So then I drew a picture of these colorful, happy balloons and the super grouchy guy and Bob Peterson and I sat in a room and developed it all. <laughs> genius, genius, genius. They worked with scientists also to figure out how the lift and loft of the balloons, how it would work. You know, it's a, he said, uh, went on to explain it. There's a ton of re research that goes into every detail. So that was really cute. The, the married life sequence, the beginning that we're all talking about made us cry. And if you think about it, it, it really makes sense. It was inspired by silent home movies. You guys are too young to remember, but in my childhood, we had home movies that never had any, uh, any sound or dialogue. You could just hear the, the projector, you know, showing the film. And so the, some of the creators remembered that also from their childhood and they decided to, to make that sequence and that story of their marriage in that style, which of course is obvious because there's uh, no dialogue, but the music, whoever mentioned the music is so beautiful in that. Um, and also they said, this was, I, I think it is, a very emotional scene because you kind of have to fill it in with your own brain, you know, with your own uh, imagination. So they always have uh, 113, which is an inside joke amongst um, Pixar animators because that refers to the classroom at the California Institute of the Arts from which most of them came and they did their first and you know, beginning their creative work. So remember when Carl goes to the courtroom because he hits that guy in the fight over the mailbox? Well, that courtroom number is A113. Um, <clears throat> one thing that's interesting is they developed new feather technology in this movie. And I know we'll talk about it later, but just the details, the beauty of fabrics and fur, but... I thought that the feather um, technology was interesting. That was the first time Pixar had invested in creating that specifically. So remember when Carl and Ellie go on a picnic, they're younger in their marriage, and then they go back up to that picnic later and she's ill. It's the first time she kind of can't climb it. That spot, that's the same tree that, that's used in A Bug's Life. And when you go back and see that scene, it's like, oh yeah, what? that's what A Bug's Life. Yeah. <laughs> I'd never heard that before. I, I mean, yeah, that I read it on the internet. <laughs> uh, the uh, Russell, 
is um, Pixar's first Japanese Asian American character voiced by an Asian American actor, a young actor. Someone else will probably talk about the actors um, later. And another interesting thing is just in the stylization of the movie, um, um, ugh, Carl is very square in his body shape and his glasses and everything about him. And um, Ellie was more rounded and the villains are kind of like triangular shape. So just interesting, so specific, uh, so intentional, the way that they create these characters. So uh, does anyone else have a fun fact out there, you guys, amongst us that maybe I wasn't aware of? Well, you just pointed out the shapes of the two, uh, of, wait, is it Carl? Yes. Wanna, uh, uh-huh, wanna, yeah. He's my character, so I don't want to call him by the wrong yes. name. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, Carl has that boxy shape and his wife had that rounder shape and they they have like corresponding lamps like on either side of their bed. This isn't something I read online. It was just something oh. I, a little fun thing I enjoyed as I noticed as I was watching it. And then also their two chairs like imitate mm-hmm. those shapes as well. So and, just, and one more thing, which I only realized after I'd seen it is the picture frames of Ellie are all rounded. Oh, yeah. 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 I never noticed that, but now that you pointed out, like, I know. Now I have to go watch it all over again, which is yeah. <laughs> fine by me because it was a great movie to watch. So that's it for the fun facts. Um, who knows where to find the Pizza Planet truck? Oh, I forgot that part, Kelly. Go for it. I remember. I learned about it. Um, it's at like the very end when they when Carl takes Russell to get ice cream. It's just like yeah. in the parking lot. By the ice it's cream also, parlor. So in the first shot, when he's when Carl is in the house and it's first being lifted up by the balloons, as he looks out the window, and you see this great shot of the shadow of the house going over the streets, and the Pizza Planet truck is right down there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So this is definitely an easier movie, at least than the beginning scene to like stick the truck in. And then you know what? Um, what's the name of that bear from Toy Story Three? Oh yeah, uh, Let's Letso L- Lozo or yeah. Anyways, that bear is in a scene in this film um, mm-hmm. when the little girl is playing with her toys, and all of a sudden the house being uh, lifted by balloons goes by her big plate glass window. Yep. So that little bear's there, and so is the Pixar ball. A right. Ball the Toy Story the ball, or oh yeah, the Pixar ball. Oh. Yeah. So and I just got to mention, because I know Byron's a big Star Wars fan like me, the uh, scene at the end when the dogs are coming in to try and shoot it down, that's modeled in terms of how they introduced themselves after how the Rogue Squadron did it uh, when they attacked the Death Star in the first movie. You can and, totally tell. <laughs> and one of the uh, photos in the end credits of how um, Carl and blanking on his name what is russell? The young russell russell spend their life together as they go and see star wars together yeah and it shows up on the movie marquee so i nerded yeah. out on that one that's cool we've well established since our toy story 2 podcast that these animators must love star wars because you can see it all over there lotso the bear i said lotso it's lotso the bear Thank so you. yeah um All right. Well, before we get into the movie, quick synopsis for any listeners who either haven't seen it or haven't seen up in a while. Um, Here we go. 
As a boy, Carl Fredrickson wanted to explore South America and find the Forbidden Paradise Falls. He met a young girl named Ellie with the same spirit for adventure. He eventually, oh, they eventually marry and grow old together. Ellie passes away and Carl is left to face life alone. Determined to go on the adventure they had always planned, Russell ties thousands of balloons to his house to fly over to Paradise Falls. He soon finds out that a young boy scout named Russell stowed away on his porch. They reach South America and meet a talking dog, a strange bird, and Carl's childhood idol, who turns out to have evil plans of his own. Carl must choose between his childhood love, Ellie, and saving a special bird and helping young Russell. Carl eventually lets go of Ellie to save Kevin the bird, Russell the Boy Scout, and Doug the dog, creating friendships along the way. So there you go. I wrote that one myself. Just want to point that out. <laughs> um, thanks. Um, all right. So first up, we might as well go right into it, is the whenever anyone thinks of Up is they think of the, um, it's not quite the opening scene, because the opening scene is them as little kids meeting each other, but the um, married married life is what it's called, right? The married life silent scene of um, us seeing their their marriage and their relationship um, between Carl and Ellie. So who would like to start? People often talk about that scene as though it's the whole movie. Like, and, and <laughs> even like for other Pixar movies, like for people who are on, maybe not like super Pixar fans on, on outside movie. If you like, you mentioned Pixar, like you can't go another minute for before people immediately bringing up the first 15 minutes of up. <laughs> um, and sometimes people forget that there's like another hour of the movie afterwards that we have to talk about too, but yeah, I do. I mean, I just forget about it. I forget about <laughs> what happens once they're up. <laughs> once he's up, I'm like, wait, right. what happens again? That you know, I just literally earlier today watched the end again to remind myself what happened. But um, anyway, yeah, that's true. I'm one of them. You know what I noticed in the opening scene, and well, the first movement really of the movie is how well they can animate light at this point. It's so mm -hmm. soft, like this soft focus, like this chiaroscuro almost. It's just, it's immediately nostalgic and so, so appealing to look at. Um, and there's, there's like these really great moments of them, I think, just showing off like light. He's like, you know, pour, looking at a window and the, the curtains are drawn, but it's just the way the light pours in through them is so, it's so beautiful. I mean, I could stare at the images on their own and, you you know, the storytelling is great, but like their technical achievement at this point, I mean, they're, they have so much money at this point, but they are so good at animating light. It's crazy. Yeah. I'm glad you pointed out that the opening sequence is not the one that we all think of because like throughout this podcast, we've been talking about, oh, the Pixar openings, you know, they're always so great and you know, comparing each one to all the others. Like, I don't know if it's the best one they ever did. And always in my mind, I had, you know, the montage of Carl and Ellie in my mind as the opening, but it's not really the opening, you know, it's. it's I, I thought, kids. I'm sorry, Jim. I, no, I thought that, um, you know, the movie was going to be about those two kids, Ellie mm -hmm. and Carl. Like, so it which of course makes the emotional impact of the following sequence, this famous sequence of their marriage told in, I don't know, seven minutes, uh, even more impactful. 
you know, because I thought it was going to be about kids and we were going to go on an adventure. Right. <laughs> well, we do, but they're not, he's not a kid, you know, yeah. really fabulous that he's a geriatric person. Not that I'm speaking from experience, but, that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, to piggyback older, on that, Cynthia, you know, if it wasn't going to be about just the kids, you'd think, okay, then it's going to be a love story about them growing older together. And sure yeah. enough, 10 minutes later, one of them's no longer with us. Oh, you know, I was going to say, Daniel, when you said that they were nominated for best screenplay, it's so well written, the story. Pot yeah, it's good. Not, it's I'll, push so back a little bit. I'll push back a little bit on that. I think that right. some of the screenwriting is, it's interesting also to find out that they had an idea about an image like the house and the balloons. They wondered who that was and they sort of scrapped it together. I can sort of sense that from, mm. from the writing. I just wanted to add that. Well, and mm. I think yeah. you're right. And Kelly pointed out that that was like the only image we were presented as the audience going into it. You know, it was like the whole hook, like Daniel said, what's the hook, the balloons? Like kind of yeah. a house get lifted and getting lifted by balloons is like the whole thing. <laughs> the reason the movie got made in the first place. Well, to, to kind of piggyback on both before we get too much into the rest of the story, the um, the screen, I found this video on YouTube that shows the whole uh, married life sequence with the screenplay, like scrolling on the bottom. And <laughs> I was just like bawling even more, like watching it and reading it. It's just so well done. Um, also, like tying back into, it's still the opening, but when... The very beginning when we meet uh, Carl and Ellie, Carl doesn't really say anything. It's all Ellie. And I was realizing, like, I kind of finally noticed this. Like, during the whole married life montage, we don't hear either of them talk. But Carl talks the whole rest of the movie. So we don't know what, like, older Ellie sounded like or really was like. And so I thought that was, like, a cool mirror, like, in the opening scene when they're little. Only, only Ellie is talking. Carl doesn't talk until the very last part um, when she says like, I like you. And she leaves out of his bedroom window and he like goes on the balloon and it pops and he just goes, wow. <laughs> like, I love that. And I remember that's the scene they showed at the Oscars that year when they were doing the screenplay category um, that year, the way they did it was they would like show a little clip while someone read what the screenplay was saying. And so I just remember it being like, Someone saying like, and Ellie jumps out the window. Carl goes over to the window to watch her run away. He rests his hands on the balloon. It pops. And like that. I don't know. I have very vivid memories of that Oscars for some reason. <laughs> but I, uh, I think, I think it's all really well done. And I, to what you said, Byron, about them having this idea and like, okay, they had the house and who was in it. And then the rest of the story kind of goes to a whole other direction. I I love that about it, though, because I love how, like some of you pointed out, we see them as kids. And so then we think, oh, it's going to be them as kids. Oh, no, they get married. It's them as adults. Oh, Ellie dies. And now we have this old man. Like, I love that. It's just like, what's going to happen now? Like, where is this going? So I yeah, the, the intro is just the hook. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they do I a mean, great job with it. That's a good uh, I was just thinking right now that the whole sequence that's silent is basically at least what I'm thinking is that it's from his perspective. So that's why he doesn't talk. He's trying to remember 
her and we just don't get his personality until we actually meet him. We're not in his head anymore is what it feels like. That's all I have to say for that. I like that interpretation. Yeah, well, I think it's also showing that you know, Carl's the introvert, Ellie's the extrovert. He fell in love with her because she pulled some joyness of life out of him, you know. And when Ellie's gone, Carl has nobody. And if he had never met Ellie from the get-go, he maybe would have grown up an old man with nobody. Maybe, maybe not. But I think it also yeah. is just to show their dynamic. She introduced him to the spirit of adventure. Mm-hmm. Well, he already liked adventure, though. That's yeah, what they connected on. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, a real person, too. We figure that out later. He's just a real person who just got his heart broken. It's because he's got a personality. It's not Ellie speaking. He has that kind of rational square thinking about everything that approaches them, except for lifting your house with balloons, apparently. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think we see that he has a personality. He's trying. They're trying not to give us the personality in the beginning because they're just trying to make you fall in love with their relationship and her. And then th- that's how they set you up for the, for the cry. Mm-hmm. And then he can be as mean as we want or he wants because we'll give him a pass. Say what you will about the rest of the film and to Daniel's point about how when people think of up, they just think of that scene. But like that whole scene could have just been like Pixar short for the year and probably would have been best short one best short like just for that scene you know outside of the movie like that's how good it is I, I thought the same thing I've, I've gone back and watched that scene probably 30 times in the last 10 years even though I've only seen the movie a couple of times mm-hmm. and I constantly think it could have been like those shorts that they would do before the Toy Story movies it stands alone as a beautiful 10 minute long story of this couple. When I think about that um, sequence, Byron, I think of your um, admiration of the lighting and it's so true. And the one picture that's in my mind, it has Ellie, she's older, she has gray hair and she's wearing her glasses and she's looking out the window and it is the most beautiful shot. Like we would say that to a photographer. You know, how much it captures. And it's not necessarily because she has some unique look on her face. It's because of the lighting. So that is very relevant to me in, in, in remembering that sequence. Is so It's so beautifully made. It's not just well told. Yeah. And I think the lighting is also designed to be extra uh, nostalgic, warm, comforting, everything to represent, you know, all that was lost, you know. Yeah, and you know, but you couldn't you couldn't photograph that if you tried. I mean, it is perfection because they made it, you know, out of thin air, obviously. But yeah, it's exquisite. Yes. Well, this is a good segue into our next topic, which is just overall animation style. We talk about this every episode, and I totally agree. The lighting is beautiful, and just how colorful it is, and like that goes into the lighting. Like it's not dark and gray like Wally. You know, it's the complete opposite of Wally's color scheme. It's bright, beautiful. The balloons, you know, the colors of the rainforest, the colors of Kevin the bird, um, the colorfulness. I think that's also why I love this movie so much. The bright colors just make me happy watching it. Um, and the way you know, going into what you guys are saying about Carl's like square face. Um, Jimmy put it on again today, right before this. And the scene where he, 
he makes it to the falls, but he and Russell get in a fight. He calls Doug a bad dog. Like he just hates everything. Like nothing turned out the way he wants. And he gets out her adventure. He sets up their chairs. He gets out her adventure book and he's just looking through it. And again, no dialogue. They animate his face like so well, like his emotions on his face when he's looking at that book. And then he decides like, I'm going to go save Kevin. I'm going to save Russell. Like, let's do it. Like the way they, and it like, we talk about how good actors are who can just use their face to tell stuff. But like, you know, in an animated movie, the actor is a combination of the voice actor and the animator. And in that scene, the actor was the animator, the way they made his face. And I think throughout the movie, Carl specifically, just the emotions that on his face, the way they animate it, I think is really well done. Also, we've talked about fabrics before and how those the sequence of all the ties that she puts on him. Mm-hmm. It's oh, so yeah. crazy. Like, it's just that Pixar one up in themselves again, you know. And then also, I was just thinking this, but is Carl, or I mean, uh, is Kevin the color of the balloons? Uh, kind, yeah, no? kind of. Primary I know, I know his I beak. Guess. And his, hmm. his beak was created off of a toucan. Okay. Sure. So, you know, and the little he's things like a from mixture. Are like what a peacock has. Yeah. And he's like Sorry. the size of an ostrich. I don't know. Bigger. bigger. Yeah. And then the feathers anyway, that was the segue was to what you talked about earlier, the feathers and everything. That's that's what it looks like if you're up close to a big bird. That's what they look like. Not the colors, but the the texture. Well, no, I was just going to say, we, you were talking about how well they animated um Carl and uh, they animated Russell really well as well. Uh, just like his like like little non neck kind of thing is like kind of a caricature, but like you've seen like little kids like that before, you know, and like just like uh, he's such a fun character, and they like his innocence comes through in the his <laughs> facial animation so well. Um, but then, I mean, I just am going to jump ahead to the dogs, the way they animated the dogs and their body behavior, the way they move and react. And so the voice box is speaking their lines, which is we'll talk about that, how funny their depiction of what dogs say is. But uh, all the meanwhile, while they're you know talking through that machine, they're just moving around like dogs. And it's so accurate. You can see the research they must have done. And anyone who has a dog or spends time with dogs, I'm sure, just recognizes. What about those great scenes when Russell has a a lawn blower, you know, and and that's what lifts him up with the balloons to go follow the dirigible. Anyways, when he takes that and puts it onto the dog's faces and their jowls go back and their lips go back. And then he does it to Charles Muntz. And I mean, that's so brilliant and funny and not even necessarily necessary to the story, but just taking the time to animate those little things. It's just hysterical. Yeah. You just reminded me of um, when Russell's getting dragged across the windows of the blimp and it's just going squeak. Dragged <laughs> yeah. along. That scene literally makes me laugh out loud every time. And the way it's the perfect timing, like it's not too short, but you think it's going to be done, but then it's still squeaking a little bit longer. Oh my gosh. Great. Well, Sorry. And talk about to faces talk too. Charles Muntz's face. <laughs> yes. Is set, like, like that's your animator <laughs> acting right there. Like that's Yeah, crazy. totally. Crazy. 
Um, yeah, but going back to the dogs, I was gonna, yeah, bring the dogs up too. just the way they animated, like their butts wiggle when like they're wagging their tails. And, um, specifically earlier, there's the scene, I don't know, just one of the scenes with Doug and he's going up to talk to Carl and he's not yelling at him yet, but it's sort of like the dog, like, um, it's okay, master. And he's like wagging his tail, but just a little bit, you know, just like, it's okay. Look how cute I am. And then he yells at him and he gets all small. Like they definitely studied up on dogs for sure. It's really well done there. The, I was trying to, I was, Jimmy and I were kind of like, what's the main theme of this movie? Like it's kind of a love story, but like the love is already lost. And so I actually had to kind of go online for this one a little bit just to see what the internet said. And um, something really interesting that I read on multiple things was that this story is all about relationships and the different types of relationships you have with people. You can have the husband and wife relationship. You can have, you know, a best friend's relationship, you know, your, your relationship to your idol Um, your relationship to your dog and how that can change throughout your life. Um, And I don't know. I just found that really interesting the way they portray specifically how relationship can change at the age that Carl is at your older age, how, you know, by that time in your life, you've, you've had a lot of relationships come and go already, you know, and then your main one, your wife dies. And then what are you going to do from there? And I just, I don't know. I thought that was a really deep way to look at it. And yeah, I don't know. Thoughts? Yeah, I think when we see Carl right after the montage, uh, he believes he's had the last most important relationship of his life, that the, the best days are behind him. And he's trying to, you know, chase the memory of that relationship by satisfying her goal of getting the house over to the falls. Um, so I definitely think there's a clear message in the movie that, um you know, one relationships end can lead to another for sure. That they're all, it's not a linear path, so to speak. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested by the relationship that he has with his idol, with Charles Muntz. Um To be honest, I think there's more there. I think that the switch happens a little bit too quickly for Muntz to be the idol and then straight into the villain. Because I think that, like, that to me is really dramatic and interesting. Um, I mean, it's there, don't get me wrong, but I could have used more, I think on that, like just to beef up that plot point a little bit more. Yeah, that's, that's true. I, I think that would have been a little bit better to have, have kept him as the childhood idol, you know, the dream maker, the one that inspired him and the one that inspired Ellie, but they never fulfilled it. If he had been a little bit longer, that perfect image, then his fall or the reveal of his true intentions would have been even more um, dramatic. And another theme I wanted to mention, Kelly, is the theme of isolation, you know, of just not having, having no relationships. So I guess that's exactly what you're saying. It's just the opposite side of the coin, you know, how isolated he was, even his little house, right. Being surrounded by those skyscrapers coming in, uh, you know, he didn't even want to open the door. Um, uh, Russell was somewhat isolated. His father didn't really was didn't have enough time for him. 
you know, Charles Muntz was isolated because he'd been rebuked by society. And so he was off on alone. So that was, that was, uh, that was definitely a theme. And of course, then the redemption of that theme is that there was something there anyway, you know, something important. I mean, honestly, when Russell was on the porch of the flying house, he, Carl thought he was alone, but he wasn't right. And then later he thought he was alone, but he wasn't because Doug was there. Uh, they thought they were going to be alone on that pl- in that place, Paradise Falls, uh, and they weren't. So um, that that was that was a theme I picked up on. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's totally true. I mean, Kelly, you kind of mentioned that before I watched the ending again tonight, uh, the relationship thing. So seeing it through that lens, it definitely seems. Like that's a legit interpretation. And yeah, isolation just being the other side of the coin there, mom, like you were saying. Um, I think there's also a theme of just like letting go of the past and sort of the adv- looking forward to the adventure of the future, sort of an optimistic in general uh, message sort of juxtaposed against like, you know, oh, it's so heavy. It's so like there's death in it. It's so sad. But really, it's trying to say, like, yeah, like, this happens. Like, it's trying to like, acknowledge death uh, for kids, which, which is, you know, interesting. And say, yes, death happens. People die. Relationships end. But then there's more. You can go on. You can go on an adventure, forge a new relationship. And so just, yeah, letting go of the past, looking forward to the adventure of the future. Is a major I thing. feel like the letting go of the past was made pretty like i mean they picturize it when he like throws all of her stuff out of the house so that he can get on with the rest of his life i mean yeah i totally picked up on that one too i'd piggyback by just kind of coming from the perspective of the creative team of this movie and how even an octogenarian can find how to be a kid again and that's what they do for a living and just the idea that experience doesn't kill your inner youth yeah he like straps the boy scout uh sash around him and like at the very end he like foregoes his walker like yeah he like found his youth again yeah Go he, takes some kind of, he takes some kind of special pills or something because he gets like superpowers towards the end he's ziplining towards the towards the the big ship and stuff it's like i don't know man yeah, he had to he, hold he held his house down earlier in the film it's, too that's <laughs> true charles Maybe he was more capable than he ever knew he was. You know, maybe he felt old and infirm because he was a lonely guy, lonely and by Mm. himself. But um, I I got that too, Daniel, that he got superpowers. And I just equate it to, you know, the elixir of youth. (laughs) Mm. He he became young again and in love with life again. Yeah, I I was going to say earlier when you guys were talking about like letting go and how he he finally like pushes all the furniture out of the house and how that symbolizes him finally letting go on the flip side of that at the whole beginning of the movie, he's literally carrying his house like on his back. Like he's holding that grief on him, like literally throughout the movie. And that's all he can care about until, yeah, he find the house finally sits at the falls and then, yeah, he has to let go of all of his belongings to get back. And then after the big old like battle on the ship, Charles Muntz, falls to his death like for him to save kevin doug and russell he has to finally let go of the whole side of his grief and finally let go of ellie by letting the house fall into the clouds 
So I think the house, the house basically represents Ellie the whole movie. Like he can't really let go of her. And he slowly is with the furniture. And then he finally lets go of her and starts his new relationships. I think the house is a character in the movie. Oh yeah. It's like a character. Yeah. I mean, would you say it's a different character than Ellie or would you say the house is just Ellie as a character? It's a separate character kind of, it's, it's, it's it's the character of memory and longing and grief. Ellie stands on her own. The house Mm -hmm. represents that, but the past and their dream and and their dream for the future. I I just, yeah. Yeah. Ellie is a person, Kelly. Right. But, but, in terms of material, I know who Ellie is, but he he like <laughs> he's talking to Ellie half of the movie. When he looks at the house, he says right. Ellie. But so I don't but know. they always show the they always show the picture of her when okay. he's talking really to her specifically. It shows a picture mm-hmm. inside, so I think that the house is separate. It's okay. the it's the relationship between them. It's the plan that they built or the future that they built. The plan, the jar of coins, their their whole dream. Yeah. yeah, and that's the promise that that uh, he kind of left unfulfilled to her, right, was that they were going to travel there. And um, he was just about to do it. He had bought the tickets for her and then she got sick and mm-hmm. he just he can't let go of, you know, fulfilling that. And we all know that, right? When we lose a loved one, we think, gosh, you know, did I spend as much time with them as I should have? Or did I do all the things we said we were going to do together? That seems to be that last stage of grief that he's holding on to until he Let's go of House Ellie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought it was so realistic about all the reasons why they could never get to Paradise Falls. You know, the they they got a flat tire. That was one. Remember, they had to break into the penny mm-hmm. jar, the money they were collecting. I can't remember the second one. Something was wrong with the house. Um, just, a tree falls on the house. Well, that's right. The tree falls on the house. So, uh, you know, as as somebody a lot older. And you guys, um, it's interesting all the reasons why you can't get out there and go get a great big adventure, you know. And I just thought that was very tenderly and well played. And, of course, it sets up for the ending, but there was truth in that. Truth as to why people can't just go do what we all wish for yet. You know, why does he throw away the coins at the end, though? I understand he needs some weight, but, like, Keep the coins, man. Come on. Well, he would have lost the house anyways. I know. It was weighing him down, as Kelly just said. I know. I mean, yeah, but the house doesn't float away till he pushes literally everything out of it. The fridge is the last thing that finally yeah. lets it go. I'm pretty sure. On that point, do we have a clear understanding of how they make it back to America so quickly without a balloon house? Yeah, the, uh, the spirit of adventure. Yeah. The, the Zeppelin yeah. or whatever it is. The, the yeah, the, air, the airship. Oh, but it just seems like it happens overnight and then suddenly they're in that like Boy Scout awards ceremony. Are, are we expecting that some time has passed between? Well, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they got home in the blimp, but oh, there's theories on that too. I've seen <laughs> theories. People think like that the, the plays, that the movie's a metaphor uh, all along, that Carl's really dead, that this rising up and going on the great adventure and letting go of life and everything, you know, so I don't, I don't buy it, but yeah, I saw that theory too. And I'm like, no, (laughs) no, the thing about my whole point there, John, was that um, 
at that point in the movie, it does, you know, a leap of nonsense or something that doesn't make sense is just perfectly fine and acceptable. You know, that, sure. that there's no real explanation how they got there so fast and nobody's aged and they're still wearing the same clothes. I mean, we don't know where in America they start, but America to South America is like how long of a plane ride nowadays? Like it can't be well, more than a day. If if he was in Florida, that's not too far from from like. I think it's safe to say boss. that they that got back in a car. day. It's not they a jet, the, though. It's not I mean, a jet. Got, it's don't like, those zeppelins move pretty slowly? Yeah, it's like the Goodyear yeah. blimp basically going to South America. <laughs> Probably like a week, at least. Wow, it seemed like this had a, had good, a lot of food uh, on it, though. Backwind or whatever. <laughs> whatever. Maybe I think the it's dogs not, got like, him there. It wouldn't have taken him more than a week. Let's say that's not that much time. <laughs> well, and that's the only thing in this movie that uh, forces you to suspend your disbelief. You know. Well, that's the yeah. only thing. Not the talking yeah. dogs. <laughs> <laughs> not the house being floated away with balloons. The yeah. dirigible drive through at the ice cream parlor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, Jacob, would you please enlighten us with some facts on the actors that were in this movie? I love to enlighten. Um, so Carl Fredrickson, our main guy, is played by Ed Asner, who is kind of a titan of the industry. Um he, he was a two-term SAG president, very politically active as well. But uh, he's 91 years old currently, still alive. And uh, his kind of original stardom came from the Mary Tyler Moore show. And then he got a spinoff with his character from that show called Lou Grant, uh, making him one of the few actors that actually played the same character in both a drama and a comedy. Hmm. It's kind of interesting. Um He's also the most winning Emmy male actor in history with seven separate wins. Uh, two of the big wins were for Rich Man, Poor Man, and Roots, both miniseries. Then we get to the other Titan, Christopher Plumer, or Plummer, also 91 and still alive. Uh, he's Canadian and uh, made his Broadway debut in 1954. Uh, and played tons of roles. Cyrano and Cyrano de Bergerac, Iago and Othello, Macbeth, King Lear, Barrymore, J.B., No Man's Land, and Inherit the Wind, all on Broadway. And then his film debut was in 1958, and probably most notably in his early years, he played Georg von Trapp in uh, The Sound of Music. Um, and then his most recent film is Knives Out in 2019. Uh, he's also part of the small club of being a triple crown actor, uh, meaning he's won an Oscar, a Tony, and I think a BAFTA is what creates that, but I could be wrong. Um, he's also won primetime Emmy Awards, uh, Golden Globes, SAG. He was the oldest winning Academy Award winner at 82 for his role in Beginners. And then he's also the oldest to be nominated at age 88 for All the Money in the World. Then we get to Russell, played by Jordan Nagai, who's now 20 years old. And um, Jordan went with his older brother Hunter to the auditions for Up. They both are actors. And uh, Pete Docter was smitten with him instantly just from hearing his voice, which 
was completely different direction than they originally wanted to go with the voice of Russell. And then also that Jordan, when he was there with the hundreds of other auditioners, would not stop talking the whole time. He would not shut up. So they just knew like that was, it's just, that is him. And so he was kind of perfect for the role. Then- Fun fact about that kid. I don't know if it's on there. I saw a video where they would make him like run around the studio before delivering some lines. So that way, like his lines would be the like, did you, wait, what about when Kevin went to the, I don't know. I just thought that yeah. was cool. <laughs> well, and it also kind of makes him sound like a fat kid. Well, yeah, <laughs> the actual the actual kid is like super tiny. So. Yeah, he's a, a tiny little kid um, or was um, then next. I mean, I, I'll put him in now, even though he's so such a small role. Our beloved John Ratzenberger, uh, he's the construction foreman. Very brief, but we we got our Ratzenberger fix. I though. almost was like, should I make Jimmy be the construction John Ratzenberger? And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should just always have someone be a John Ratzberger. I don't know. <laughs> um, then next we go to Alpha Dog and also Doug, uh, which is voiced by Bob Peterson, who's a Pixar animator and co-director of this film. So he did all he did all the voices. So um, he did the high voice, the low voice for Alpha and Doug. Um, and he's also kind of got a little career going on as a voice actor now because of all these things. Then uh, Beta, which is Delroy Lindo, is a British-American actor. And um, he's been a recipient of Accolades NAACP Image Award, Satellite Award, nominations for Drama Desk, Helen Hayes Award, Tony Award, and Critics' Choice, uh, Critics Choice Television Awards, and two Screen Actors Guild Awards. Um I can't really remember what I would recognize him from, but I've seen him in so many films. He's just one of those character actors who's been working for the past 30 years. Uh, And then we go to Gamma, which is another Pixar guy, Jerome Ranft, who's Joe Ranft's brother, younger brother. Uh, Joe's the one who passed away, right, Kelly? Um, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, I think he's one of them. Remember, one of them got cancer really young and died prematurely. I'm pretty sure that's who he is. Uh, and th- oh. so the guy, so the guy voicing after the like old, Monsters Inc. or something. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so the younger brother is the one who voiced um, the little bulldog. Uh, and the other thing that's interesting about him is he's a Pixar sculptor too. So he's making the models of these of whatever creature or character that comes up in these films. And then uh, Ellie Fredrickson is the uh, Ellie doctor, who's the daughter of the director of this film. A little nepotism. But uh, those are your main people. And I think the two guys alone kind of make it a standout performance. Um, Christopher Plummer and Ed Eisner. Pretty crazy. Ed Asner, sorry. Ed Asner also played Santa and Elf. Big, big role. <laughs> he played Santa oh, in like five different movies. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Along with the Santa credits. How did they do... Um... Good for him. Jacob, what you can aspire to. <laughs> How did they do Kevin's voice? Uh, I don't know. I've... Okay. There's no credit listed. Just sounds. Yeah. 
I'm yeah. sure, yeah, somebody went crazy. They probably sampled actual birds and kind of mixed it all together. Yeah, maybe. The sound effects department. Yeah, there's no um, actor listed. Whatever. <laughs> what I did notice a thing about this when you're looking up all the voice actors for it, once you get past the list I gave you, you get hundreds of people with, there's no character names for everything else. So in our other movies, there'll be, you know, the monster walking across has a name because they, they mention him and say hi to him and all those kind of names weren't in this movie at all. So it's just like various character voices. Uh, it's kind of interesting that that's, you know. Yeah, I saw that too. All right, um, Jimmy, tell us about the music. Well, I mean, it's a really great soundtrack. Um, as Daniel pointed out, it was uh, composed by Michael Giacchino, who also did um, The Incredibles and Ratatouille. Uh, but this one got him an Oscar. It also got him a, a two Grammy Awards, one for Best Score Soundtrack uh, Album for a motion picture, uh, blah, blah, blah. And the other one was for Best Instrumental Composition, which was just for uh, Married Life, the main theme. Which, by the way, always makes me think of Disneyland. I don't know how many of you have been to Disneyland since this came out, but it's playing in that... Uh, uh, right up by City Hall, like when you first walk into Disneyland through the tunnels and like the trolleys coming by and p- picking people up and, you know, the barbershop people sing out there. But yeah, that's that, but it just always makes me think of that. It's the perfect music for that place in Disneyland. So anyway, I'll just say that some other listeners might be like, totally. Um, John, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> so the score also won the Golden Globe for Best Original Score and um, uh, BAFTA Award for Best Film and Music. So uh, got a lot of awards, a lot of praise, and it really does kind of hold the movie together because um, like we already talked about, it kind of has this sort of all over the place feel once they're up there and just like a bunch of random sort of stuff going on but that theme is just like reiterated and all these different uh, variations throughout the movie so it keeps us going it keeps us tied emotionally to the characters and even to ellie um throughout uh, even though like sometimes it sounds like an a- adventure you know like really intense and other times it's super slow and languid and um, so yeah, it's really notable for that. And uh, I saw one review of it that was said like it grew exponentially with a viewing of the film. Like my opinion of it grew exponentially after viewing the film or something like that, which I could see. Um, if you had just listened to the soundtrack on its own, another reviewer pointed out that it's a, it's a very classical uh, style soundtrack with the theme that is kind of meandering through the entire score. Um, it's a very sort of clot. So hearing it on its own, you might kind of be like, this sounds kind of hokey or kind of cheesy, but the fact that it's trying to hold this heart and like with that opening and with the idea of like remembering the past and who um, Carl is as a character and, you know, it sort of represents his longing for the future, his old timey longing for the future. Um, 
I think it, yeah, I I resonated with that review that said, once you see the film, the music really stands out in a new way. So yeah, I recommend people listen to it on its own uh, to check it out and sort of see its beauty for what it is. But uh, it's more impactful along along with the film. Jimmy, you know how some movie themes become, you know, in they find their way into popular culture or, you know, the, the, orchestras are playing the theme or a theme's being used in a commercial or, you know, marching bands at the high school. I mean, up, this beautiful music is not really out. I haven't heard it much outside of the film. Yeah, I was actually just about to say that this came out my senior year of high school and like senior year and into college, like this turned into one of the songs everyone would like, just if there was a piano around, someone would go play it on the piano. (laughs) okay good um and definitely i feel like it definitely was a concert band arrangement that what it wasn't as popular as the incredibles like i don't think anything could be as popular as the incredibles but um it was in the band culture for a while um and people will still mention it made a name for himself with the incredibles in the band world it was just so popular for bands to play the incredibles specifically and uh, that helped. Yeah, directors will latch on to composers. Sorry, what were you going to say? That that I was going to say that helped, but that's still surprising. That's kind of a not not a score that you would necessarily expect to be like a band room stable compared like, to something like The Incredibles. Right. This is a beautiful score, and I'm super glad he won. Like, well deserved. But I'm still upset at the Academy Awards because he didn't even get nominated for The Incredibles music. It just makes me mad. But whatever. <laughs> Did anybody else get kind of like a French Parisian vibe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Reminded me of Ratatouille. Yeah. That yeah. Way. yeah. Okay. It, I mean, yeah. the accordion and the violin. And- well, it's in the waltz, the three, four time, which kind of gives it that Frenchy feel. Mm-hmm. Wispy. Um, yeah. Yeah. The wandery piano of the main Ellie theme reminded me a lot of Amelie, another soundtrack uh-huh. that kind of, uh, you know, permeated mainstream and kind of out has outlived the movie itself. Right, and very French also. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, super French in that case. But yeah, I mean, the theme, there's so many iterations of it. But yeah, the one that we're all thinking of, it does have that French sound. All right, well, um, this movie doesn't have a huge influence in the theme parks, but you can meet Russell and Doug in California Adventure. Um, for a while, you can meet them in front of the... Um, Redwood Wilderness Trail, which is like across from Grizzly River Run. And they're still there sometimes. But for a while after this movie came out, they like redecorated, if you will, that Redwood Creek Challenge Trail. It's sort of like a jungle jimmy type maze that was based on Brother Bear. And then when this came out, they sort of uh, re-themed it from Brother Bear to up. So instead of like going through and like finding your spirit animal, like in brother bear, you would like do each little course. And after each course, a Disney employee would give you a badge and you had to like get all five badges. And then on your way out, they'd be like, you're a wilderness explorer now. And you could like take a picture with Russell and Doug. It's like really cute for like the little, little kids. So that's where you can find them in the theme parks. Um, all right. So now is the time for us to, Talk about our least favorite and favorite parts of the movie. So this one's going to be tough for some of us. 
Least favorite sequence. I think I'll start with Byron this time because I feel like he's going to have a least favorite. <laughs> oh, least favorite sequence. I mean, if I'm forced to choose one sequence, I think that the last battle goes on for too long. Um, I actually found myself getting a little distracted um, during it. It's just sort of uncharacteristically long, I felt like. And But I, I have to say, my real answer that I want to say is that my least favorite sequence is how these sequences don't really gel completely for me. So I know that might be like an easy way out, but I don't, I feel like there's some connective tissue that's missing with this movie. Um, so yeah, that's what I'll say. That works. You can talk about an overall kind of least favorite thing too, if you don't have a scene. Um, Jimmy, least favorite? Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with Byron. Um, I mean, I specifically agree with Byron about the end. Like, that's what I picked. It was the end, like, thing with the dogs come and they're, they're having the dog fight, you know, in their airplanes. And it's just, you know, we're just, we've already talked about how much suspension of disbelief there is. But, like, the dogs flying the plane was like, okay. Like, because I was so into, like, how they were so acting like real dogs throughout so much of the movie. Uh, despite the fact that they could talk, obviously. But uh, then they're flying planes. But yeah, it also just kind of goes on too long and it's um, I get bored and that might have been uh, where I usually fall asleep or maybe a little before that. But it's, uh, yeah, that's my least favorite. The big action bits at the end. The bone-shaped joystick didn't bring you back? (laughs) That, it's like, did they throw that in there to make it seem like, well, like, this is how they do it, you see? Or was it, like, just supposed to be funny? I don't know. I don't I know what it. you're talking about. The bone-shaped joystick. So, so when, they were, when they were in the planes and when they would shoot the guns on the planes, they would yeah. bite a bone on the front of the console. <laughs> <laughs> and it would, like, that, uh, jump the shark a little bit, that's- huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. Anyway, that's my um, <laughs> All right. Cynthia, least favorite? You know, I don't have a least favorite. I, 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 the movie's too new. I'm too enamored by it. I really enjoyed it. And I can't really even separate things. I mean, as uh, Byron and Jimmy are talking about that last scene, I would be like the kid in school that goes, yeah, I agree. You know, just because I don't have any other better answer. Uh, so, so uh, I, you know, right now I'm just loving the movie, all of it. So no, no worst sequence for me. All right, Jacob. Okay, so the B one is the they make the dogs so real, but then like their loyalty shit. But any, I'll get to that. That's something else. But the first number one pick for actual sequence is the sword fight slash cane sword fight <laughs> between Carl and Charles. Just so stupid. Like we're talking about the suspension of belief. Obviously, that's a big one. But like, let's just extend the cane. It's so cute. He's this cute little man, and and then this other guy can't even. It just that's not action. They should. I mean, it just wasn't good. I also really can't believe that he held that fucking house down that whole time. Like, what? That's ridiculous. It's just balloons pulling it, you know. But it I might actually know. stretch him out a little, like kind of little chiropractor going on there. Yeah, yeah it can run. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no one All has right. reported Russell missing in, and I don't know how long either. I don't know. And he shows up oh. with an old man and a fucking blimp. <laughs> yeah, dude. Full of talking dogs. Well, he doesn't really oh, have like 
parents that seem to care about him, so maybe they Mom's wouldn't notice. Together, right? Mom's there, yeah. Yeah, that's true. How much- he was supposed to be with his dad and stepmom, and so mom thought he was with dad, and dad just didn't. I don't know. And he somehow ended up in a in a neighborhood full of newly coming up skyscrapers instead of the. Well, that's because he was trying to get his badge. Right, and he that's lives in one of those skyscrapers. Yeah. All right, Daniel, least mm-hmm. favorite. Okay. <laughs> no. Okay. All right. All right. I don't know. I was going on a tangent. Um, I have to reiterate what what everyone else here said. I, I think the the first half of this movie is so much stronger than the second half. Um, and there's a lot of it. Just the plot just kind of comes into a uh, just turns into an action set piece that I didn't think was that interesting compared to, you know, this, the first half is so good at establishing this tone and, and specific world for the characters. And then the, it just, it kind of, yeah, they didn't, they didn't know what to do and they just kind of put in an action set piece and the character developments all feel really abrupt. Like they all sort of uh, like Carl Russell, Doug, they all sort of like, learn to let this inner strength in being brave and stuff, which is great, but it all feels like really abrupt and out of character. Like when Russell takes off with the leaf blower, he like, he learned to use that really quick, um, which sure he can learn to use the leaf blower. That's fine. But it, it just felt like a really abrupt shift. For How the do character. you know he doesn't have his gardening badge, dude? He has his gardening badge. Gardening's not That's a badge. He, he has his badge camping recall, badge and he can't pitch a tent. True. <laughs> No, he has he has like this map badge too, but he somehow got lost in the neighborhood of skyscrapers and ended up at Carl's. No, actually, I don't care about that. I don't know why I'm spending so much time on that. Like you know, and Doug like learns to stand up to the other dogs like really quick too. He just one minute he's like cowering, the next minute he's like standing up. You know, and I, and I felt like some of that was I, I didn't feel I, that was earned sorry, with a lot I of the characters. Have to disagree with you. I completely disagree. This whole movie, Carl is struggling to change. It's a struggle, and he finally gets there for the climax of the movie. Yeah, because he like just has superpowers out of nowhere, though. He was like on the canyon. No, man. And then he has- there are studies that when old people have a purpose, they like can actually move and walk better. That's like a real thing. I'm sorry. It is. <laughs> he finally had a purpose again after losing his wife, and now he can uh, he can walk a little better. Hey man, exercise makes you stronger, dude. Think of all he walked across the whole falls the day before. Sorry, that, <laughs> is this like the same idea where like house. a mother can lift a school bus to save her child, kind of thing? But more sure. long term and shorter <laughs> levels of craziness, I would hope. Hmm. Let's go to a nursing home and let's let's give it a try. <laughs> give them, a them. Well, no, we're gonna give them a purpose, and then we'll see if they get stronger. Yeah. Mm. Like a battle royale or a Hunger Games type situation would be good. It's the law of inertia. If you have something to do, somewhere to go, you'll move better. You're just sitting around doing nothing. You're not going to move anywhere. Your joints are going to get all stiff. Yeah, but it's also just about like back to the theme, right? It's the weight off of his joints. It's the weight off of his shoulders as he is accepted you know, the loss of his beloved wife and embraced a new future. Yes. Thanks Ta-da. for bringing us back. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, John, least favorite? Uh, any scene involving uh, Charles Muntz, uh, mm-hmm. which, which is the second half of the movie, which jives with everybody saying second half is not as good. 
Uh, but even in the first scene, the the character development for him, I just don't understand how he goes from being this heroic character to being like a murderous, just super villain, just because he got kind of publicly shamed a little bit, and 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 the commitment to stay on that, uh, stay in that desolate area for what is it like 50 years is that what we're led to believe something like that i think um just for a bird i don't know it was hard for me to believe and so it was hard for me to buy his motivation for being so evil so when he gets into that sword fight as jacob brought up i'm just like what is happening here with these two men like (laughs) well he like goes off because society Uh shunned him and he's like like cynthia said isolation he's isolated for 50 years and he goes a little crazy like, I think it's that could happen to a person. You go a little crazy, get a little evil. I think his vanity showed, though, even in the early stuff when they were kids yeah. admiring him. He mm. he definitely had a vain streak that we kind of all knew, but mm-hmm. the kids didn't kind of thing. But maybe we wouldn't have known that as kids either. I don't know. Well, they built his character off of um, Charles Lindbergh, even Walt Disney himself. You know, these great heroes, uh, Clark Gable. So he was the matinee idol, you know, and also once again, sort of living in memory, not really necessarily the truth, you know, he represented all that. Yeah. That's interesting to think about him being stuck in the past in a certain way. Can't let go. Yeah. And he's kind of got like an Ahab thing going on to white whale fixation thing. I did think it was silly that like, he finds this bird skeleton and like the society is just like, there's no way this is a real skeleton. Like just, and society right away is like, Oh, you're not our hero anymore. Like so quickly. Yeah. The whole like cancel culture of that portion of it goes by really quickly. It's like five seconds long and suddenly these he's dead to him. The bone thing happens though, Kelly all the time, like dinosaurs and stuff. They've, mix and match and don't get it right but they like make a creature out of the bones but they're from different animals sure i know that so but... i'm just saying we don't have to suspend belief for that moment <laughs> oh my gosh i was just saying though like he could have been like oh sorry yeah i made a mistake but i really found these bones like i feel like society was like you made this whole creature up you made this up with all these bones and you're purposely deceiving us and it's like why'd you go to such an extreme judgment i don't know it's, it's also though he was in younger days like kind of just killed a bunch of shit and showed everybody and that kind of changed in culture too that that wasn't really the definition of the hero anymore he's just killing animals right. for the sake of killing animals in his own vanity so I think that's part also of why he got canceled. That's true. There's like a little sub theme of like love and respect for animals in this movie. For sure. Mm-hmm. That's true. Very minor sub theme. Um, I really don't have a least favorite scene. <laughs> I, I think the part when like, if I was like, had to really think, and I guess my answer would be, when he first is flying away in the house and Russell's like on his porch and then like they get into the thunderstorm and like, it's all crazy. And like, I don't know. It's just kind of like a, and then they're just like suddenly in paradise falls. I don't know. That seems kind of like whatever, I guess to me, (laughs) but I'd like to really like stretch and think about what my least favorite scene was. All right. Favorite scene. 
Jimmy. I, my favorite scene, the scene that fills me with the most joy is when the house lifts off the ground with the balloons. Um, it's just like such a joyous payoff after the preceding scene, the montage that is so famous um, that sort of eclipses the rest of the movie because it's so good. But this, this, the, the house lifting up is part of that. And, you know, it's in the title and everything. Uh, I feel like the whole movie was made for that moment in a way. And everything that comes after it is like, that's why we don't like it. It's because it doesn't even matter. It was like an afterthought. Um, so yeah, I think that's mine. I mean, obviously the opening with their whole marriage and her dying is like so powerful, but it's the lifting up that really gets me. All right, Byron. I mean, I wish I had a better answer, but it is the married life. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a, yeah. I was going to say no one could pick that, but I forgot, <laughs> but that's fine. <laughs> If I can't do that, um, then I'm just going to actually copy Jimmy. I mean, seeing the house go up is truly badass. And seeing it go across the town and everyone looking at it looks super fun. Yeah, definitely. The color, like the, the like shadow of the balloons, how they're like colorful and stuff on the ground. Yeah, really cool. All right, Cynthia. I love the scene where, um, okay, it's near the end. Russell is now up on the Charles Munts you know, blimp. And um, Carl's trying to get, use the house maybe one last time. And all of a sudden Doug shows up at the door and um, says something like, I was on the, I was on the porch, you know, but you're my master. And Carl says, of course you're, I'm your master and loves the dog. I love that scene. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Cause it just sets him up. He's changed so much and he loves the dog and the dog licks him all over his face. And that's my favorite part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that yeah. part too. I might also say like the dogs in general are my second favorite scene. <laughs> yeah. All right, Jacob. Uh, I would say the lift off, but for different reasons, it's because of like the court scene and him getting pushed into a corner, a guy who's been hit down already. And then he lashes out because it's all he can do. I mean, I think we've all been in similar scenarios, uh, but it speaks to me. And then the the joy that it's like the first joy we see in Carl is him sticking it to the man. You know, like, oh, yeah, I'm just saying goodbye, you fuckers. And then bye with the bird, you know, and uh, that's really fun. Uh, we didn't talk about the fact that there's blood in this movie. There's oh, like yeah. a lot of blood. That's crazy. Does Pixar, does Pixar, Pixar doesn't really have blood, right? Am I wrong about that? There's blood in The Incredibles. Okay. There is? Mm-hmm. They get like scratched up and stuff and beaten up and stuff. But not like this is like pretty intense. Like he whacks a guy and he's bleeding in his head. Like, yeah, it's a little bit more intense. There maybe. aren't a lot of opportunities with blood when you're talking about like toys or robots like in Wally. Like, yeah, the creature that, yeah, yeah. yeah. the bleeds. There's Dory bleeds in Finding Nemo. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> that is actually the matter. first blood. <laughs> the yeah. first blood. First blood. Dory, first blood. First blood. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Whose turn is it? Daniel, favorite sequence? What do we do? A favorite sequence? Oh, um, I don't have anything to add. I mean, the montage is the best scene. I'm not here to tell you that it's not. 
to be clever. I do want to, I, I, I do want to piggyback what Jimmy and Byron said though. Um, not just the, the lifting off scene. And then like the sequence where the house is floating through the clouds and stuff. I wish that had lasted longer, actually more than the movie had been like Carl and Russell just traveling in the house and stuff. Totally. That would have been cool. That was a good, like tone that kind of ended too quickly before it got there. But like, yeah, almost anything from the first half is pretty good with the animation style and, and the, the montage, the Carl and Ellie montage. All right, John. If it's not the marriage scene, um, the scene when he, pulls out the book at the end and finally reads the portions that she added to it um, and, and reads her final inscription to him. I just think really, uh, I like a slow reveal and uh, that was a good payoff. Yeah. You know, I think it's so interesting how many of you guys say like from that, pretty much what John just said on you guys don't like from the movie. And that's all my favorite part. I love when he sits there reads the adventure book and she says, you know, thanks for the adventure. Go have a new one. Like he finally realizes like, sure. I never took my wife on the adventure. I promised her, but our marriage was our adventure and she's giving me the okay to like go. And he pushes all this stuff out. The two chairs are sitting there right by the falls. He goes, he saves the day. I actually love the old man sword. fight. (laughs) I just think it's so funny and like silly. Like, you guys are being too critical and like real about it. It's just a silly animated old man sword fight. Like, come on, where else are you going to see that? But in a Pixar movie, um, I love like when we said already Russell sliding across the whole window and Charles Bunce is just like, what the fuck is happening? Like, and I love when Doug like puts the cone on alpha and everyone's like, uh, he's like sit dog. And they all sit. And he's like, um, they call it, they're like, yes, Alpha. He's like, I am not Alpha. He is, oh, like, <laughs> like all those little spots. Like, I, I just love, th- like, that's the ultimate transformation. He finally lets go, like, metaphorically and physically with the furniture. He goes, he saves the day. The house, after he, you know, Charles Muntz falls, the house falls into the clouds. And, like, that's the final signal of him, like, going on this new adventure. And... You know, I didn't really notice before this watch that in the credits, they show all the like little pictures of like him and Russell, like hanging out. Russell comes to the old folks home. He like becomes like a Boy Scout troop leader, like taking the kids to the zoo. And um, yeah, I would say from the book moment on is my favorite part of the movie, the whole climax. Um, All right. Favorite character. Jimmy. Uh, it's Doug, the talking dog, um, the loyal talking dog. I mean, <laughs> God, I don't know why I, I, you know, I guess I love my own dog. So I'm just like, oh, it's like my, I don't know. I fucking love that dog so much. Uh, so it's Doug. <laughs> yes. I feel, I, I guess we, we didn't really talk about this too much already, but I think they did a really good job with the dog voices and like mirroring what dogs are probably thinking and especially with doug <laughs> obviously you all right you approximate any like real linguistic like whatever dog language would be but they just go to like a, a highly stylized joke like like oh yes i will be much pleased to do this thing that you say yeah, yeah like that. The weird that, that, that doesn't make any sense that a language would add i love how they like, call russell the small mailman 
The small yes, meal me man too. is back. I love that. <laughs> I love it so much. So it's uh, interesting, Jacob, to find out that that was the assistant director, I think you said, or one of the assistant co-directors. Co- co- okay, yeah. Um, because, yeah, it makes sense that somebody who would conceive of the idea would end up doing the performance because it's like, I don't know, it just seems like just a great idea. And whoever conceived of it could only pull it off like that, you know. All right. Byron, favorite character? Ellie. Um, especially young Ellie when she first meets Carl. With her giant right. missing tooth. I love that so much. <laughs> <laughs> and her like crazy hair. Yeah. Just like looks like a kid that's been out playing all day. <laughs> uh, okay, Cynthia. I think Russell is my favorite character. He's just so funny and innocent and trying to help and oblivious and yet vulnerable and hurting and a child, but overcomes so many things. And he's just adorable. Well said. Jacob? Carl. I I just, I mean, it's his story and I'm along with it because I like it and I like what he does. And I think the voice acting is the best of the cast. Um, Yeah, Carl. All right, Daniel? So I, I think that the best character and maybe one of the best characters in all of Pixar is Carl Friedrichsen. Um, I I agree with Jacob. I think it's like the, you know, the arc he goes through about letting go of the boldness of having a character who's this like, for, I I mean, it's rare for Disney to have a a central character that's like this really sort of introverted and isolated character who doesn't talk that much till he's an old man and doesn't have um, the relationships like that. And I think to, to explore like the interiority of a character like that is great. And you don't really see it in, a lot of other Disney or Pixar movies. And it's a, it's a, a really great characterization, I think. All right, John. Uh, I also like Doug best. Um, my favorite like archetypes for a character in movies like this is like the super likable character who's technically supposed to be a bad guy. Um, when the movie starts, like they're all traveling along together, but he's like, you're my prisoner. I've caught you. I'm taking you. And yet it doesn't really <laughs> seem like a, um, threatening moment it just seems like they're all walking along together so i like his his face turn over the course of the movie into a good guy yeah it was hard for me to pick a favorite character out of like the big three right carl russell and doug i probably i mean when this movie first time it came out i would have said doug like all the way and i i guess i would still pick doug but i do really like carl like without carl this movie would be nothing you know like it is his story um so I don't know. It's kind of a tie between Carl or Doug for me. But I do want to say shout out to Kevin the bird because Kevin like is super funny and silly and pretty. And I love the way he'll like, he like still like took care of them and like saved their asses like multiple times, like running away from months. So mm-hmm. honorable mention to Kevin the bird. <laughs> All right. I want to give um, an honorable mention. I'm I'm going against uh, what's been said in this podcast. I want to give honorable mention to Charles Muntz also. We're ignoring the fact that this guy invented dog translators. And he taught <laughs> dogs how to cook. And he taught dogs how to fly planes, you guys. Is there no credit for this? I mean, yeah, Wait, he yeah, he, he goes crazy. Dogs how to play poker. Yeah, I, I, I knew you were gonna mention that scene. I knew oh, you were gonna mention that. So funny. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Daniel. What else did you? Um, 
Yeah, and he like discovered, you know, before unheard of species. And here he did spent his whole life to prove that he is in fact the first person to discover the species. He spends his whole life on it, sacrifices a normal life and the rest of the continent. And what, what happens if, at the very end? It is stolen out from under his feet by this random hero. old man, <laughs> by this guy who comes. I mean, yeah. What if like he made them all up before, though? What if he made up all those creatures before, and he was a total fraud, and this was his only chance at telling himself that he's not a fraud? No, hmm. but he got he got <laughs> caught for fraud for fraud. No that creature, though. He's not, a triceratops you know. in that gallery. He's not that old. I'm just being mean. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, now it's time for overall thoughts and letter grades. Jimmy, take it away. Um, yeah, this is hard because I think it's really good in a lot of ways. But like we just have said, like probably too many times at this point, just the second half feels unconnected and kind of like I don't really want to watch the rest of it. So that's that brings it down, uh, my overall review. But man, that montage is so good. Carl is an excellent character, like you guys have pointed out. Doug is so awesome. The talking dogs are so fun. So it's got a lot going for it and as far as my overall opinion. But I think it needs it still resides in the B range because like almost 40% of it I don't really care about. Um, not that it's poorly done necessarily. Like the animation's still good throughout. There's still some good chuckles here and there. But just the story is so discombobulated. I think I end up at a B plus. All right, Byron. I'm not sure if this movie is like underdeveloped or overdeveloped. But I think it something got lost when they were figuring out the actual bones of this movie. Um, that said, there are some parts that are so excellent and so masterful. So I think Pixar has set the bar really high for themselves. And I feel like the, for me, this movie doesn't quite get to the standard that I think that, you know, there's such master storytellers. I'm surprised that, I feel like the structure isn't quite as solid as the other movies that they've done. So I think, I think for how endearing it is, it goes pretty high, but I think for everything I just mentioned, it kind of comes out to a C for me. Tough, tough, you're tough over there. All right, Cynthia. Well, I really, I thought this movie was just wonderful, surprising and beautifully done. I'm giving this movie and A, I do see some of the flaws, and especially after this podcast, listening to all of you brilliant people talk about the film, you know, you brought to my mind ideas or weaknesses in this case that I hadn't really looked at before. So, but nonetheless, aside from, from uh, those things, my, my strong sense of this movie is it's just absolutely wonderful. I just, I could see why it was nominated for the best film. So I'm going to, give it a great solid a it's hard kelly because you know we grade all these pixar movies and it's difficult to grade a movie on its own merits not in comparison to the others you know so 
So I, I, I fall into that trap. So looking at this movie, though, on its own merits, not compared to others, maybe every one of Pixar movies I'll give a grade A to. But this one is deserving. It's a really well-made movie with a totally original story and characters. You know, bravo. Bravo, Pixar. You know, Cynthia, this is actually the first movie you've given an A to. Mm. You had two A minuses before for Finding Nemo and Wally, and all the other ones were some sort of B. So, this is your favorite one so far, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> See, that is the difficult part, right? To rate them and compare them. But on its own, I liked and loved this film. I can't tell you if this is better than Finding Nemo, all the others that I love too. But um, for this moment in time, what grade to give this movie? Take an A. Take an A. All right. Jacob. Uh, B minus. I I think uh, what Byron touched on way earlier on the connective tissue, um, either that was uh, the film was a victim of over editing or not enough expansion on certain things. There was some leaps that could have should have been baby steps and uh, that could have brought it to an A for me. So B minus. All right, Daniel. You know, I think um, this movie's a little messy. It has, a, a, you know, and, and it's it's not in my top tier Pixar. Um, but what it does well, it does really well. Um, and I think the themes are there. I just think there's not there's some there's some it's 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 more execution issues rather than structural issues, um, which I'm saying it's 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 on the uh, the A minus B plus borderline. Um, but because I've I've I'm more in the mood, like I'll recognize the greatness parts rather than like hold weaknesses against it and keep score. So I'm going to I'm going to just barely give it an A minus. All right. John. Uh, it's a B plus for me. Um, it, I'm going to make an analogy that might be unpopular here, uh, but it kind of reminds me of Radiohead's latter albums where there's only like one or two tracks on them that I really like, but those one or two tracks I think is some of their best work ever. But if I want to listen to something start to finish, uh, or in this case, watch something start to finish, I'm going to go back to Toy Story, Finding Nemo, um, Wally. Um, so this has some of my favorite moments of Pixar in it, but also a lot of, a lot of stuff I could do without in between. Good way of putting it. You know, guys, everything you're saying, like the like jumpiness and like the like, you know, the abrupt character changes Daniel said, and you feel like it's not really flushed out. Like, I see kind of what you're saying, but I think like that it works. And like, that's what I like about the movie. I like that it's that it's crazy adventure and it's there's like a, there's magic to it and you know, it's like true human emotion, dealing with grief, dealing with your wife passing away and not knowing what to do with it and the colorfulness of it and the symbolism behind everything we talked about. And like I said, I just like sitting in my school, high school gym, like just nothing to do but sitting and watching this movie like two times straight in a row, like I did help me connect with it in a way and I love this movie. It's definitely one of my favorites. And I'm also going to give it a solid A. So there you guys have it. We've got uh, three A's, three B's, and a C for up. 
So our homework and our listeners' homework for next time is to watch Toy Story 3. Get ready to cry a little bit more. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm excited to see Toy Story 3. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll save all my thoughts for next time. So thanks for joining us. Please follow us on Instagram. Send us your thoughts in our email. And thanks, John, for coming and finally being here with us. Maybe we'll get you back sometime. Thank you. My, my life's work is now complete. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you all next time. Friday Forum Podcast is a JK Entertainment production. All thoughts and opinions by the participants are theirs and theirs alone. Original theme music by Jimmy Anthony. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Feel free to follow us on Instagram at Friday Forum Podcasts for updates about future episodes. And please email us at FridayForumPodcasts at gmail.com to contact us and let us know what you think. I'm your host, Kelly Anthony. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.